0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello
1: and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair it's such an honor to
0: present this next award
1: and here are the nominees and the oscar goes to
0: and the oscar goes to and i can't deny the fact that you like me
1: right now you like me
2: i'm the king of the world there's a mistake moonlight you guys won best picture
1: Katie Rich, the deputy editor of vanityfair.com, and I'm here with our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Uh, we'll be joined later by Mike Hogan, who is tied up, but will be on to talk about Amadeus, the winner of this week's poll of our um, Oscar-related rewatch. He watched the three-hour director's cut, as we all did, and no one is going to watch three hours of a movie and not um, be around to talk about it. <laughs> um, also, uh, I know we said we weren't going to talk about Westworld, but I do want to say anyone who watched Westworld and hasn't listened to Joanna and Richard talk about the finale and still watching, go do that. You all need it explained for you, I'm sure. And Joanna and Richard are here to serve you.
3: I mean, go listen to that episode if only to hear Tandy Newton's, like, creative British swearing. It's delightful.
1: (laughs) I mean, that is the highlight of uh, Westworld itself is Tandy Newton's British swearing. So I'm glad it (laughs) um, continues over into real life as well. And then also, I should note, we have an interview in the back half of the episode with Andre Holland, the star of The Eddy, the new series on Netflix, and I talked to him via Zoom, um, so we'll have that as well. Anyway, before we get into any of that, we want to talk about uh, the rule changes to the Oscars that finally came that I think we were all expecting. They didn't really do anything that dramatically different. Basically made it so that if your film is not playing in theaters in the next few months or however long it takes for movie theaters to open again properly, uh, you will still be eligible for the Oscars. Um, You have to do a few other things to qualify. It has to go on the Academy-only screening site within 60 days of the streaming or VOD release. And I don't know. I think there are other rules that I'm not 100% clear on. And I'm not sure we need to be. But basically, they did the bare minimum they needed to to say, we still value the theatrical experience. There's no reason to believe they will continue to allow streaming-only films to qualify. Um, but for this year, in these weird circumstances, they'll make it work. Did, did any of this uh, surprise you guys with their decision?
0: Well, what it says to me, potentially, is that members of this group, that you know of this part of the Academy that, that had this meeting and decided on these new these rule changes may know something that we don't about what various distributors are planning to do with the rest of the year. Mm -hmm. You know? Because it's not like they're looking at Tom Hardy and the upcoming Capone movie and are like, well, could be an Oscar movie now. I I, it might be like I guess
1: it could though.
0: I mean it could be for sure. But I think I wonder if it's more yeah, we talked to Searchlight, we talked to Paramount, we talked to you know, so and so and like the plan is it hasn't been announced yet. They're probably gonna do just VOD release for movies this fall. Yeah, you know, um, so it just makes me think if like we're we're right now, it's kind of just like stuff that was going to be VOD anyway, is a couple things like trolls have been pushed, you know, right onto the um, online or something that was in theaters for two weeks, you know, before the shutdown, just because it goes online like the hunt or something. But I wonder if they know something we don't in terms of what else is coming um, in terms of VOD.
1: So you suspect that maybe they know that even in October, they're not going to be putting their best movies in theaters.
0: Yeah, and then maybe had conversations with those people who are like, "Yeah, like please change this rule because we're gonna do yeah. this for for blank movie."
3: Well, and isn't the Trolls World Tour thing oddly enough a very important part of all this? Because Universal put Trolls World Tour on streaming, and it earned a hundred million dollars in rental fees in the last three weeks. Think, thing I'm looking at from last week, so who who knows how much more uh, could have gotten? But like, basically, that is proof of concept that like. Uh, you can make money, big money, off these VOD releases.
1: Not as much money, but you can make money. Sure. Like, I don't think there's reason to think that Trolls World Tour wouldn't have made more from theaters and then made a whole bunch of money on streaming. Um, But yes.
3: Though, I mean, if it's a kid's movie, I mean, Katie, now's your time to shine as a parent of a small child. I have not rented Trolls World Tour, thank you very much. I didn't say you have, but I'm just (laughs) saying, if there's a kid's movie coming out, aren't you more likely to be able to see it immediately uh, at home than in a theater?
1: Yeah, I mean, it like it depends on like the age of your kids, and like now I think the calculus about taking your kids into a movie theater is is different than it was a few months ago. Um, you know, the movie theaters were always somewhere you could go to take them to get out of the house, right. um, and they would play for weeks and weeks and weeks as a result of that. Um, and Trolls is about like merch and streaming. They got a Netflix series. Like, there's all these kinds of elements to it. Um, but I think there's a reason that Universal did that. They were already kind of too far down the road. But like Disney held off on Milan because it might right. play for adults. It might play differently. It might play better globally. Um, and I would expect a lot of them are going to continue holding those things until next year.
0: And the, the numbers that people pointed to, you know, were that, oh, well, on, well, VOD, they get, you know, this much higher percentage of ticket sales, essentially, versus a lower number that the, when they do it, you know, theatrical. And people were like, well, so this is a new model. But the thing is, is I think that model tops out at a certain point. And there's a reason why Universal is holding Fast 9 until next year, because it's like, yes, you can on a movie like Trolls, make a quick pretty big net profit but it stops at a certain point and it's miles behind what a fast nine would be in theaters you know so maybe we're just getting a new kind of more bifurcated where some movies seem like a better play online but i don't think all movies will
3: absolutely And, and and i just want to be clear even though mike is not here to be mad at me for what i said um that i am not like in favor of the theater model going away nor do i think most films, like, I would prefer to see almost any film in the theater than VOD at home. But I, I have been wondering about this kids movie, like, you know, something that is clearly for kids, like Trolls World Tour versus Mulan, which might play for both. If it, if it has made sense all along for some of those movies to have VOD options.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they they have tried that before. You know, Universal was the people who tried to put Tower Heist on VOD early, um what, eight years ago or something and made all the theater chains so crazy that they took it back. That's not quite a kid's movie, but it's more of a family movie thing. Um, And I think Netflix is going to continue being someone who's going to push that envelope, like Klaus, which we talked about last year, um, I think had some kind of nominal theatrical run to qualify for the Oscar that it got nominated for. Um, But there's just, there's a lot of money to be made for a lot of people by having these things in theaters. And I think the theater chains and the studios are still intertwined enough that a Trolls thing like this will probably be an outlier, especially if the Academy is going to come in here the way they did. I think they recognize that they have a position of power to help boost both of those industries and say, like, no, hang on, we're not abandoning anything yet. Um, And I think they're going to pull the strings that they can there. The question for me, Oscars-wise, is how this VOD model might work for... The more adult focused movies that are in the Oscar conversation, you know, thinking about things we talked about in years past, like The Farewell, having this great hit summer run or eighth grade or all those documentaries that like all of a sudden got people into theaters. Even if theaters are open this summer, in some places I have a hard time imagining any of those being the kind of thing that succeeds. So I'm curious if we'll see VOD numbers for something along those lines. Like, I don't, like is like Tenet the version of that that would happen or maybe not even something that big?
0: Well, I think about, you know, something smaller than Tenant. I think a good example would be, like, Call Me By Your Name, three years ago. Can you believe that, by the way? Oh, um, Jesus. People saw it at Sundance. Then it was months and months and months, and then it played at Toronto, and then it came out in a very, very slow platform release where people in New York and L.A. were talking about it two months before any a lot of other people around the country got to see it, you know? Because I think it was released, like, its last run of Cities was, like, in, like, mid to late January, so right before the Oscars, you know? So I wonder if with a movie of that size and that has somehow that kind of buzz, I mean, these movies aren't going to be playing at festivals, presumably, if if you do release it all at once, if everyone jumps on that opportunity around the country, around the world, potentially, to see this thing that might otherwise be meted out slowly from starting with big cities and then kind of working their way down. So I, th- I think you, I could see a certain populist success with a movie of that scale. Um, Mm -hmm. But when it's something like Tenet, where, you know, you're really wanting to, like, have the exponential sales of it's when a a group of four people go, it's not just one rental fee, it's four tickets, you know, so I I, I don't know, I think it'll be I think that maybe they'll, they'll kind of do it half and half or something. But, um, but for smaller, like, quote, unquote, more Oscar movies, I think there could be something kind of interesting about about a, a kind of VOD thing.
1: It does seem like they could eventize it using, honestly, like people like us or people on Twitter who want to like, be. I think about like Promising Young Woman, which kind of got thrown into the shredder of this spring being so chaotic. Um, You know, a movie like that that's got buzz that people have already seen and liked and like want to throw their support behind. Like you can make that an event when it launches like the way like Never Have I Ever, the um, Hulu series. Like it's getting people talking around, around the same way. There are movies that can benefit from that in the same way that they would if they were playing in, you know, limited release in New York and L.A. Do we want to talk any other Oscar rule changes?
0: Uh, well, we lost a category.
1: Well, down to 23 now.
0: Sound has combined. Again, it used to be best sound for years, and then they split it up into sound mixing and sound editing, which always vexed people. Like, what's the difference? I think, Katie, you're the only person, and I know who has a, has had a consistent understanding. Uh, uh, it, it
3: ebbs <laughs> and flows. I have to, yeah. like, brush it back up every year when the time yeah. comes. Every year, we need that refresher.
0: And At first, when I heard that, I was like, oh, well, why is the Academy taking... An award away from the sound branch, but it was the sound branch that wanted it. So,
3: yeah, no,
1: I, um, so I had this story with a sound mixing, oh God, yeah, he was a sound mixing nominee, Paul Massey, for Ford versus Ferrari last year, and asked him about this, and he was fully behind it. Um, I think because, A, because there was a lot of confusion and they weren't, you know, they didn't feel like, The Academy members were voting, knowing what they were doing. And there's a lot of overlap between them now. I think with digital technology, the difference between sound editing and sound mixing is a lot less clean than it used to be. Um, So, I mean, good on them for being, you know, willing to sacrifice a whole extra set of Oscars. Like a whole bunch more sound people were getting Oscars before. Um, But it does seem like it was the right choice on their end, too. The other change that I wanted to flag that will maybe affect us and people's like braggy tweets is that screeners are going away after this year. Do you guys feel a little pang of sadness for that?
0: Well, they're going digital.
1: Sure. I mean, yeah, the, people will continue to get copies, but you will not have like a pile of discs sitting next to your television. It will be oh, no, much I'm,
0: harder to Instagram. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah.
3: thrilled. I have to say, because like, I know, Katie, you, you get them at home for the last couple of years, but I gotta say the, the mailing has been so like cumbersome. And then I don't know what to do with all the discs when we're done. Like, I still, right now, have a huge box of screeners that I don't know what to do with after it's all over. Uh, It's felt like such a... And the fact that, like, they they would often send them in individual envelopes just felt like such an egregious waste to me. So my crunchy California self says I'm really into the idea of digital screeners.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm sitting here um, at my desk in my apartment looking at screeners for How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, and the John Travolta (laughs) film The Fanatic. So those have somehow (laughs) endured in my house because I don't know what to do with them.
3: I know. I've got Honey Boy and Beautiful Day of the Neighborhood on my desk for some reason. I
0: don't know why.
1: (laughs) Is, Is there not part of you that wants to keep them as like historical artifacts? Like I've got screeners from like the late 2000s that I don't know it's interesting to me at least that they're
0: still there that's like my i have one cursed screener from a since canceled filmmaker um that i'm told is actually fetches a pretty steep price on ebay i would never sell it because i would probably lose my job but you know i might hold on to that just just in case it's my i think i have the same
1: screener yeah. yeah
0: yeah i mean i think is it nice to be able to bring screeners home to my folks and watch things you know over the holidays uh, they were thrilled to see 1917 when it wasn't even out in theaters uh, in Providence where they live. Yeah, sure. Can we figure out, you know, watching a digital thing? Fine. But I think Joanna, you make the most salient point in that it is an incredible waste of, you know, paper product and plastic and all that stuff. And it begins to feel a little gross when around, you know, mid December when you have piles high of this stuff that you're never going to watch, never really going to do anything with other than throw away.
1: Well, it makes me wonder if it's going to do anything to stop the, you know, flood of like Marriage story blankets or like weird other swag, you know, like sheet music from a nominated song. Um, I imagine they'll continue to come up with ways to do that, which is that's some of the waste that makes me really crazy, but at least it will be reduced to some degree.
3: They can still send me Irishman wine. I'll take it in a bottle
1: of <laughs> Irishman wine.
0: That's oh, fine. love Irish wine.
1: <laughs> we are not, we are not for sale, to be clear, but. And my something two shows Pope slippers, house,
3: but. Oh, yeah. I'll
1: never take away my two Pope slippers. But,
3: but like, yeah, the screeners, I'm, I'm actually, I'm sorry. Sorry. I maybe it's because I'm like still so new to it or whatever uh, that I'm just or I came to it like because, you know, I imagine if I had an office where everything came, things would be I'd feel a little different about it. But like, oh, my poor mailman. I don't know. I'm I'm happy for my mail people. So. yeah.
0: I used to. I mean, I, don't, I guess I still technically do have an office where these things were sent to. And at some point, um, the head of VF special events just kind of took it upon herself to clean my desk up because it becomes such a mess. <laughs> of, of, and she hated looking at it every day. So sorry about that, um, Sarah. I think that the screener pile kind of confers a certain ridiculous, meaningless status thing that I think we'll we'll be happy to get away with that kind of jockeying. And the other thing is, it's going to be so easy to say, oh, no, you can't borrow that because, like, it's going to be a whole login situation and all that. So I think, you know, we've saved ourselves some social stress.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, don't worry. There will still be meaningless status jockeying in some aspect of the Oscars, Um, even if there's no, like, luncheons or in-person stuff this season. We'll find
3: a way.
0: That's how we get back to normal.
3: I also (laughs) never Instagram my screener because I think I felt like I didn't know if it was like against the rules or whatever. I I like I'm so new to screeners that I'm like, I don't know. What do I do? What am I allowed to do? I don't know. I don't want to like lose them. So um, anyway, please,
1: please don't. Please don't take away our access. We'll do whatever (laughs) you want.
4: Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the reviews director of Pitchfork. And this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. The festival also features diverse vendors, as well as a specialty record, poster, and craft fairs, and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.
0: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Terms apply.
1: Okay, we now have Mike on the line with us as we move into our conversation about Amadeus. Is this the first best? No, Casablanca was a best picture winner, um, but this is a um, best picture winner, winner of Best Actor, a handful of other Oscars, this big 1984 Oscar heavyweight. Um, I had never seen it before. I think it, am I the only one of us who watched this for the first time for this?
0: No, I hadn't seen it either. Okay.
1: Oh. Um, I was totally fascinated and captivated by it. It just—it was one of those Oscar movies, and f- for me, particularly the Best Picture winners of the '80s. A lot of them feel like this, like drudgery homework that I should be catching up on. But Amadeus was a blast. I was so excited to watch it and see this and kind of get why the Oscars really went for it in 1984. Uh, did you guys have any revelations uh, diving into it? Maybe Richard, since you went for the first time, do you wanna want to go first?
0: Yeah, I didn't realize that it was so funny.
1: Yeah, me neither. You know,
0: I think that like it, when I was a kid, it I think my parents probably brought it home to watch themselves. They're big classical music fans. And maybe my sister and I asked to watch and they were like, no, it's a grown up movie. And for years I was just like, oh, it's going to be dark and boring and, you know, kind of impenetrable. And I think also because I was more familiar with Peter Schaefer's other big play, Equus, which is like such a dark thing, you know, and kind of relentlessly so. I really wasn't expecting it to be funny, but the minute, especially, I mean, even the beginning is kind of funny, but the minute Tom Hull shows up and has that crazy laugh and these ridiculous wigs, you realize that like half of it is a sort of farce in a way, which I think is really interesting.
1: Yeah, it's amazing to watch a costume drama and not maybe not amazing. I mean, there's been plenty of great costume dramas. And I thought a lot about the favorite watching this, like something that recognizes that like the pomp and circumstance of this period where everyone has wigs and elaborate hats and clothes uh, is all just masking them being like dumb, craven humans the same way that we are. Um, yeah, and it all it bec- like the wigs become part of the joke, which is just such a, a smart way into this period that is so visually distant from us.
4: It reminded me of the sort of costume drama equivalent of like Blade Runner where you had the <laughs> idea, oh, what if the future was just as screwed up and weird and crazy as the present? Right. And mm-hmm. and they do such a great job of totally making that world believable. And making it feel very lived in and making all of the characters feel, you know, or at least most of the characters feel alive. They feel like actual people that you would know, not like cardboard cutouts sort of, you know, moving around. And and obviously some of that's a tribute to Peter Shafford, the great playwright. And a lot of it is a tribute to to Milos Forman, right? I mean, just the production values of this thing must have been so overwhelmingly high that it takes a lot of effort, I'm sure, to say. But let's all act like we're having fun and that we're human beings, you know, in on Earth. Um, and they, they, I don't know why, but I, I spent a fair amount of time thinking about how well they did that watching it. And I guess I'll keep, I'll say, <laughs> in addition, that you know, I think a lot of that comes down to the performance by. Tom Hulch or Hulse. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. And there's such a fun thing. Like, there's a lot of biopics that do this. What if you could just really hang out with, you know, Shakespeare or whoever it is? But the way that they take the air out of, you know, a classical composer and show him that in a way he was just as much of a crazy sort of rock star type as uh, as, you know, Kanye West today or something. It's a very fun setup. Right. I think that that's just inherently interesting and it really almost makes you want to go and um, not only watch, you know, some great productions of Don Giovanni or the Magic Flute, but also uh, tell the people involved to stop taking themselves so seriously.
1: Yeah, especially when you get to the end and he's working on the magic flute and, um, you know, everyone's like, this is nonsense, this is vaudeville. And, of course, they show this extended sequence of the vaudeville, which for a while you're like, wait a second, I've been watching a bunch of operas. Is this different? The crowd seems different. This is ridiculous. And then you realize this is just, like, the most, like, base level performance they had then. But, of course, Mozart comes to it and turns it into a masterpiece.
4: Right. It's like it's like the Bowery Ballroom, you know, or something. Uh, and it's that, that's such a cool sort of nuance that, that I, I certainly didn't know about. I saw this movie a million years ago, but... But it was all pretty new to me, and my knowledge of Mozart's a lot greater now than it was at that time. At that time, it would have been zero.
0: Yeah. And I I appreciate something that looks at, you know, one of the quote-unquote great masters of the Western canon, you know, in Mozart – which you know is a kind of own a, a legacy building that also has I think recently been sort of questioned like well it sure is interesting that it's like mostly all white men who like made the supposedly great art um, throughout history but I like that it looks at him and says well what if it was also kind of squalid and petty and ridiculous and still great art could be born from that I think it's it's a much more hopeful movie in that right in that right than I thought it was going to be even the end which is this kind of tragic comic. I guess paying on to mediocrity feels there's a warmth to it. You know, it's not outright just kind of mean satire or anything. Um, so again, that was that was another surprising thing is that the movie has a, a friendliness to it. I guess that nothing about the ominous poster and, and even the title kind of suggests.
1: Yeah, but
4: it's struggling with that question, which is such a great question. Which when you have this level of of artistic talent, I mean, I w- I would say leaving aside, you know. The sort of postmodern critique of whose stuff gets remembered, Mozart was like a ridiculous world-bending talent, you know. And and starting at age four, and so I do think it's it's fascinating because you you know, as Salieri sort of is painfully aware and is really angry about, you don't choose where that talent appears in the world, you don't choose who who gets it, and uh, often the people who have it. They almost have it as a function of not having a lot of the other, you know, skills and qualities that one might look for in a, you know, a trusty companion or whatever. And so I think that is a that's a great topic for art. You know, the very, very greatest art. Ultimately, the the origin of it is mysterious and the ways it comes into the world can be, you know, even infuriating.
1: Yeah, the way that it has so much it has sympathy for Salieri even though he has this, trauma, this tragic comic character you're talking about and I think I found him very relatable and maybe that's more of a oh, me yeah. thing than anyone else no.
3: like oh, yeah. Salieri someone is such a mood he's such a mood you we're, know we're, we're mood. all Salieri yeah
1: <laughs> yeah like I mean and like we're all Salieri in that we watch people who we like think don't deserve their success or like we met them once we don't like them and then we watch them like do something great and it's annoying but you can always be like oh but you know is he really as talented as he says but for Salieri it was Mozart like he had this misfortune of having a rivalry with an actual genius which is what makes it like relatable and you're like oh poor guy he never stood a chance and by the end of the movie he knows he never stood a chance uh, which is maybe something we could all stand to do
3: I yeah I watched I watched this movie a bunch when I was a kid for some reason. Uh, it was a big in my household I don't know why I've seen comedyos <laughs> a lot of times and I uh, like what's true uh, you know uh, is that this depiction of Mozart is not, Completely invented. Like his surviving letters include like immature scatological humor, and he was, he was a like uh, loved his bold fashions and stuff like that so you know it is based in some reality but what i did learn um more about digging through sort of the the foundation of this film is is who was in some of the stage productions which i never knew like that ian mckellen played a young ian mckellen played salieri against um tim curry yeah. which I'm, I'm just like i would have loved to have seen tim curry do this on stage that would have been perfect so
1: and do you know who eventually replaced tim curry in uh, one on broadway as as Mozart, Mark Hamill.
3: Beautiful. Well, what? that's interesting.
4: <laughs> I think I would have been a little bummed if I had tickets for the Tim Curry and then Mark <laughs> Hamill showed up, with all due respect.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but the, these depictions, F. Murray Abraham, so iconic as uh, Salieri and um, and Tom Hulse or Hulse, however you want to pronounce it, um, they just knocked out of the park with these two types. Something I never noticed uh, as a kid watching this movie, and it's such a Big part of the film. I don't know why I never noticed it. That Salieri is like always eating sweets all the time, and that his teeth are disgusting. Um, in the later things, when F Murray Abraham uh, is talking, and I was just like, "That's a that's a fun little part of everything." It's disgusting every time he shoves something sugary in his mouth. I'm like, "Brush your teeth, man!" Oh no,
1: they're <laughs> rot out of your head.
3: Anyway, I love this. I guess it's probably
1: literally what they did. When yeah, they didn't have great dental care back then.
4: I would have liked to seen a more Italian Salieri. Uh, For some reason, I just was, you know, there were some things where he talks about his, you know, interest in desserts as being an Italian thing. And there's there's clearly this, you know, one of the sort of minor subplots maybe is this idea that, um, you know, the German speaking emperor would like to have a German opera. But the Italians are all getting very well paid positions on the theory that only Italians can write. Opera or or and operas can only be sung in Italian, so there's something kind of inherently Italian about the role that that neither Ian McKellen nor F Murray Abraham exactly bring to it. So um, maybe maybe someone should do uh, you know a new stage production of Amadeus.
0: The casting in general is so interesting because you know I was just reading like just the kind of Wikipedia stuff about the movie. Like Kenneth Branagh wrote in a, his memoir, one of his, that he was considered for the role, but then Milos Forman was like, "Oh no, actually, I want to do American actors," and he really does have a lot of American actors in that who aren't doing, you know, a sort of period piece accent. Really, like it's an interesting choice, and I think that all of the the kind of principles in this movie, from Hulst to Abraham to Elizabeth Baridge, who plays um, Mozart's wife, this didn't this big Best Picture winning, multiple Oscar nominee movie didn't really instill any of them as, like, major stars. Partly because Hules quit acting in the 90s to become a theater producer. And I think Barrage just kind of didn't really do much after this, I think, by choice. Abraham has worked consistently, but, you know, he didn't become Anthony Hopkins. And he maybe could have. Uh, So, I don't know. There is a weird view of this movie, I think, from a very sort of cynical, a wordsy perspective, that almost makes it feel a little cursed. The curse of Amadeus. Yes.
3: What's funny about Amadeus is, or, or the year is, you look at the other contenders, which, you know, is what we've we been doing. Cause like, you, you, one could say Amadeus, like, I don't know, swept, if you want to call it that. And looking at the competition, I'm like, there aren't any, you know, places in the heart. Um And The Killing Fields, those are important movies that I've seen. But The Natural is kind of the only other one that feels like it's endured and, and that people feel is like a classic that people still like absolutely must watch. And other than that, a lot of these films that year just don't seem, I don't know, that sticky in that way. You know? I pulled
1: out my copy of Inside Oscar um, for this because I wanted to see what the race was like. And also, in- Inside Oscar is this incredible just like, reference book that has all the, like, who won the Critics' Prizes and what were the print ads like and all that stuff that we know when we're living in it and then easily forget as soon as it's over. Um, and uh, David Lean's A Passage to India was kind of like the big, prestige thing that year. It was supposed to be, like, his big, grand farewell, and it got a couple nominations, and it won Supporting Actress, but kind of otherwise got um, blanked. But I think there was a lot of grumbling about how... They nominated all these movies that, like, didn't make a lot of money. And, like, People was mad that Ghostbusters and Beverly Hills Cop got overlooked. And the staff <laughs> of Film Comments said, more than ever, the Academy's middle-aged, middle-brow membership seems estranged from the films people were paying to see. Um, so, in some ways, it's, it's the same as it ever was. They were also trying to make it really short. They didn't let Johnny Carson do a monologue because they wanted to keep it under three hours uh, and made everyone make their speeches short. Um so yeah, it is one of those years where like everything was just kind of like here is a prestigious film, which I think is another reason I always assumed Amadeus was kind of a snooze.
4: Well, they did kind of blow it with Ghostbusters and Beverly Hills Cop. Although I Beverly mean, Hills
1: Cop did get a screenplay nomination, which is fantastic, okay. well, alongside good. Splash. Like they get a uh,
3: score nomination, though. You know what I mean?
1: Well, did you know that they, back then they had uh, original song, original score, and original song score, which was run by Prince for Purple Rain? <laughs>
3: Well, that, that's deserved.
4: Oh, uh, I mean, yeah. see, you're, you're bringing back a lot of memories here. I was nine years old in 1984, so you can imagine there was a lot. I, I mean, how many times did I see Ghostbusters in the theater? Like, seven, you know? And then you'd go out into the parking lot with your friends and try to, like, say out loud all the lines you could remember so that you would never forget them. You yeah. Could uh, them to in yourself. defense
3: of uh, the Blockbuster and, and the Oscars, Pat Morita was nominated for The Karate Kid. So Yeah, you know, it's a good nomination. <laughs> Something in there. Um, I do want to talk about the win, though, because... So, F. Marie Abraham wins a Salieri. Tom Hulsh is also nominated in Best Actor. But now, I feel like they would run them in different categories. And who do you think they would run in supporting?
1: Tom Hulsh, definitely.
3: Yeah. Yes. And, I mean, because that's the, like, Aaron Burr, Alexander Hamilton thing of the musical Hamilton, right? Like, Although Aaron they both was got nominated
1: Lee. as lead, didn't they, at the Tonys? I thought... No, yeah, and they, they did have, because David. did. Sorry, too much Tony's yeah, in here. But David no, no, Diggs won supporting.
4: Actually, but, if you didn't yeah. see the director's cut, you might not have thought that way because I think didn't the director's cut add a lot of F. Murray Abraham maybe a bit too much
1: yeah well there's a whole scene in the director's cut that I looked up where um uh, Mozart's wife Costanza comes to him basically like thinking she has to sleep with Salieri yeah. to, get, um, him, to get Mozart this big opera and that whole scene is not in the original theatrical cut it is, is a
4: pretty good scene I mean that's a brutal it's a brutal, a really scene. It's a brutal yeah. scenario
1: Yeah, and it's like one of the worst things Salieri does over the course of the movie. I mean, obviously he like psychologically torments Mozart That's my baby also bad. Um, But it's a really fascinating scene. And yeah, you're right that if um, not seeing that, then it might not have been as clear that Salieri is the main character.
4: Uh, Do we know the backstory of why you can only watch the three-hour director's cut? Because it is sort of an irritating situation. It's
1: really irritating, I have no idea. Streaming rights and like, you know, which cut goes on? I, like, because it, 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 maybe as part of Amadeus, feeling like it doesn't get quite get its due, where it's like, ah, just the director's cut is fine. Like, no one is lobbying to have the original version.
4: It also feels kind of salieri-ish to insist that everyone watch the three-hour version of your movie, not the shorter one that won the Oscar.
3: Mila Forman gave an interview to uh, the AV Club in 2002 because that's when this cut came out. It was 2002? And he said it was a mutual decision to like cut the thing out that they cut out. He says, whatever was not directly connected to the plot, I just cut out. But it was a mutual decision to limit the running time. I wanted the best life for the film itself. Well, once we're releasing it on DVD, it doesn't matter if it's two hours and 40 minutes long or three hours long. So why don't we do the version as it was written in the script? Uh, I guess it's just 20 more minutes. but And I guess the thinking is that if you're watching at home, you don't care as much. But... Um I, I guess I, if you I,
4: see it as a tribute to Peter Schaffer's script, that's that's nice, you know. That makes sense. Okay. Now I'm changing my mind about it.
3: Okay. <laughs>
1: I just wanted to shout out one, like we were talking about how funny it was and I have just been so stuck with this one moment that is plays in importantly later in the movie where they go to this costume party with Mozart and his dad and he does something ridiculous and turns to his dad and sees him wearing the frowny face mask and then he lifts, yes. or you know, sees him wearing the smiling mask and he's like, oh, my dad's happy and then the dad lifts the mask and he's frowning in this incredible theatrical way. It made me laugh a lot. I was that so impressed.
0: S- <laughs> yeah, that whole scene is incredible. I mean, I think that that scene is the purest example of what a, and this is such a trite term, but what a visual face this movie is. I mean, mm-hmm. so many shots in, in this movie, the frame is positively filled with billowing costumery, wigs, some sort of ornate, you know, wall situation. Like, it's just every frame almost is just, like, stuffed with detail. And I think it's just, like, thrilling to look at you know and uh, it's a, I mean they clearly spent some money on it but then again this movie made the equivalent of 200 million dollars in 1984 oh God, uh, which is insane if you <laughs> think about that now this movie would make 15 million dollars if that
1: and there were people being like ah oh, but they don't reward movies people actually see
0: right yeah uh <laughs>
3: interesting um, I do want to shout out uh, uh, Roy Detrice plays um, Mozart's father and um, Game of Thrones fans will know him as the narrator of all the uh, Song of Ice and Fire audiobooks so um, oh. it's fun to hear his voice in there
0: oh. uh, also Simon Callow is in the film who played the uh, Amadeus in the original Broadway production and, then, and this has a significantly smaller role, which um, probably (laughs) stings some.
3: Hurt,
1: yeah. But
0: I like that he is also in Shakespeare in Love, which I feel like this movie has some connective tissue with. Yes, Um, I was thinking about that when we
1: were talking about, you know, your heroes as a, um, you know, gross person, just like the rest of us.
3: He also kind of does... Amadeus in Four Weddings and a Funeral, which is my favorite Simon Callow performance. He's like kind of doing like this version of of Wolfgang uh, in that movie. Yeah, he just um, had it
0: already. He was like, "All right, I'll just yeah. do it for this movie."
3: Oh, I've done this. <laughs> That's
0: fine. <laughs> um, I would just say like the three hours is long, but don't be like me and be so intimidated by this movie that you avoid it for years. Yeah. Um, if you haven't already watched it to you know to listen to this, do seek it out. You know, rent it for four dollars on wherever. It's nourishing in a way, and it kind of cracks open, at least for me, and maybe you if you haven't seen it, a, a really big blind spot in sort of recent-ish Oscars history um, yeah. and yeah so I, I really like I'm glad that I had this excuse to do it because I don't know when I would have otherwise so can we do um, the uh, I don't know actually I'm going to uh, draw up a list of all the movies I need to see and just force you guys to watch them <laughs> with me
1: I mean that's what I kept trying to do putting Unforgiven on our poll and no one oh, ever
0: right. voted for
1: yeah, it. Yeah. but uh, maybe we'll do when we're done with our acting run we'll each of us pick a giant blind spot and put it on the poll and figure out um,
3: Unfor- which one of us Unfor- Unforgiven, I promise, will not be as fun as a <laughs> <laughs> My
0: my biggest blind spot—I'm not going to say what it is—but it rhymes with Medicine Maine.
1: <sighs> <laughs> well, that one got like, like historically blanked by the Oscars, Richard. So you're safe if you never oh, gonna have to watch it. For okay.
4: <laughs> I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious.
1: Okay, so now we're going to hear my conversation with Andre Holland, who is the star of the new Netflix series *The Eddie*, which is executive produced by Damien Chazelle. And if you are a uh, Oscar obsessive, which I assume you are, you hear Andre Holland and Damien Chazelle, and you immediately flash to the Oscar stage in February of uh, 2017 when *Moonlight* and *La La Land* switch places as the Best Picture winner. Uh, And as it turns out, their relationship uh, goes back to that. They met each other on the Oscar circuit for those movies, and he talked a little bit about his memories of that moment at the Oscars, which I. I, eventually, I want to interview every single person who was on that stage to hear about it, because it's the most fascinating moment I can think of. But we also talked about the Eddy, which is a set at a jazz club in Paris. Um, and it is maybe a little bit different from what you're imagining uh, from a Paris jazz club. It's very modern. It's set in, you know, kind of in this version of Paris that is not overwhelmingly white and has a lot of different cultures filtering into it, including American jazz music. Um, and it's really fascinating. It's kind of a, a way to learn about jazz, maybe in the same way that you learn about Mozart watching Amadeus. Um, and it was uh, it was Andre Holland who did speak some French and had some musical knowledge um, kind of got a jazz education in that as well so let's hear my conversation with Andre Holland all right well Andre Holland thank you for joining us to talk about the Eddie um, and do you want to um, give us just a quick update on how your quarantine has been as you're um, you know you've got a Netflix show debuting while everyone's stuck at home so um, you're going to help entertain us at least
2: Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Um, Yeah, the quarantine has been up and down. I'm here in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, yeah, it's been sad, obviously. And and the sound of ambulance sirens have been, you know, has been arresting, happening regularly. But I've been trying to make the most of the time catching up with friends and and, um, doing a bunch of reading and, and, um, yeah, trying to rest a bit and, and trying to help where I can, you know, doing a bit of volunteering and stuff. So, yeah.
1: We're talking to each other on Zoom. Have you embraced the, like, Zoom hangout lifestyle that so many of us have learned to adapt to?
2: Nah. I, listen, <laughs> I hate, I hate, I'm, I'm, I'm really, like, technology averse, you know, I'm terrible with these things. So I'm getting used to it, the Zoom thing, but, but I'm much better with, like, an old school phone call.
1: Well, watching the Eddie, um, which is what we're here to talk about, um, th- especially in the last episode, for some reason, like it's you guys all in the streets of Paris playing music. It's crowded; everyone's sitting in cafes. Like so much of the show takes place in this nightclub, and it really does feel like this dispatch from this previous era. Like we didn't appreciate any of that enough um, while we had it, and I imagine having been in it and been in those places, it feels even more like that for you.
2: Yeah, absolutely, it's crazy. I mean, to think that a year, well, a little less than a year ago, we were in Paris and. I was riding around on my bike and sitting in cafes and drinking coffee with friends and having the time of my life. And and now it's, you know, that seems so far away, but yeah, hopefully we'll at some point soon return to, to happier times.
1: Yeah. Um, So I was reading interviews you did around the time of High Flying Bird um, last year, and you had executive produced that and are an executive producer on this as well. And you seemed, you were like so enthusiastic about being a producer and about getting to work in that way. So was part of that enthusiasm, what led you to being uh, in this and also a producer on it?
2: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, first of all, it was like Damien, because he and I met each other several years ago and I wanted to find something that we could work on together. And so when he reached out, that excited me. Um, the story I found interesting. The character I found interesting. But yeah, the the opportunity to to have a say uh, and a, a seat at the table really really uh, was meaningful to me and made a yeah. made a big difference.
1: Is the Damien connection through the Moonlight Lala La Land stuff where you guys were all on the circuit together for months and months?
2: Yeah, yeah. We just met each other socially. You know, I think at, I think it was in Toronto at the film festival we met the first time, and and all ended up at this party together and and had a great time. Yeah, we I mean we we spent like months and months and months together, so we got to know each other pretty well.
1: Yeah, so this podcast, we talk about award season a lot, and we talk about the Oscars obsessively. And something that we always notice that I think is hard to tell from the outside is how much the people who are, you know, nominated for the same awards and have movies at the same time see each other all the time and forge friendships. And with Moonlight and La La Land, I think it became so visible because of the whole mix-up where everyone was on stage together. And there was this kind of, like, this community among you guys. Um, and I love that the Eddie has is another direct result of a friendship that's born in that circumstance.
2: <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. We Yeah, it, uh, a lot of people have mentioned that actually and it uh since we've been doing press for this i've gone back and, and watched that rewatched that moment at the oscars again for the first time you know since it happened and really yeah yeah and it's right i mean i look at that and i'm like man those are all our friends you know yeah uh, <laughs> la la land crew and uh so it was, it was a crazy moment but also like a, a really special moment
1: what does it feel like to rewatch that after avoiding it for so long
2: you know if i mean in a way it feels like it happened like you know 20 years ago mm-hmm. because it um yeah, it just feels like it was a different, a, a different world, you know. And I think being there on that night, it felt like an out- out-of-body experience, you know. Yeah. I, like I remember pieces of it. I remember walking down to the stage and like looking to the left and seeing Matt Damon there clapping, and then looking <laughs> to my right and seeing Meryl <laughs> Streep there, you know, and all, all all the people who you've sort of admired for so long. Um, And then I just remember a lot of like, you know, flash bulbs going off and then, yeah, it was over. It was like the next day. (laughs) Uh, So going back and looking at it, 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 it does bring back some fond memories.
1: I think when you watch it, it does seem like everyone's having an out-of-body experience. Like the shot of Barry Jenkins, I think in particular, is like, you can tell his brain is like trying to keep up with it. So I, I've rewatched it a lot, but I think it's a lot easier to rewatch if you weren't <laughs> there than to love it. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so this friendship you forged with Damien, was it around music at all? Like what, what was the basis of you guys becoming close in that process?
2: Uh, well, well, we didn't. We didn't really become. I wouldn't say we became super close during the during the um, award season process, but we did get to know each other a little bit. And it basically was just, I think, a mutual admiration. I, I really liked La La Land. And I liked um, Whiplash, and, and you know, and I, so I think I just went up to him and told him so. And um, yeah, we're like not far from being the same age, and so we had some mm-hmm. things in common, and, and uh, really hit it off. And then when we met on this project. We had lunch together and then discovered that we have similar taste in films and, and in music and, and uh and just got along really well.
1: So there wasn't like a shared jazz obsession. Um I, I just I basically wondered what your jazz background was before we're going into this because it's so enmeshed in the music and obviously you're playing some music yourself, but I I wondered if you were um if you were a jazz obsessive before this.
2: No, I won't say I wouldn't say that I was obsessive. I grew up with music, but mostly um gospel music and blues, soul as we said before, I'm from Alabama, and so, and my grandfather was a preacher. And so, we yeah, we grew up in that kind of a tradition. Uh, but as I've come to jazz l- later in life, I definitely have um, heard and noticed the similarities between those forms. Uh, so I think a lot of what Damien and I talked about was, was about jazz, but was also about the other things that um, sort of helped to create the jazz sound, those mm. you know, sort of building blocks. And we shared a lot of movies, and he, he actually put me onto this... Um, Documentary about Thelonious Monk, which I found really instructive, and and, uh, and I share with him a couple of movies that I like. So yeah, it was it was it was cool. I, but I, I definitely wasn't a jazz head. But I I uh, my love for it has has grown.
1: So what were those building blocks you're talking about? Is that building the character who you're playing, or kind of the mood of the of the show, or just kind of talking generally about inspirations?
2: Yeah, talking about inspirations. I think for me. Uh, when it came to building the character one of the things that was really important to me i I really you know want to understand who this guy is and what his initial connection to jazz music might have been right and he's a guy who we find out through the course of the series is in search of something of a new sound of a new way of expression of a new of peace and it was my belief that his search was was really a a personal one right that he's what he's looking for is something that is deeply personal to him. So, for me, it was important to go back and, and listen to some blues and listen to some gospel music and try to imagine what sounds he may have grown up hearing, right? And then try to make those connections so that the music that comes out of him at the end, when he finally does come into himself, that it that it has some resonances of of not just that it's not just about being virtuosic or you know interpreting other people's music, but that it also is something that comes from a deeply personal uh, place in him. Does that make sense?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about the way that the show is about jazz, but it's also got so much North African music, so much hip hop in it. Like, there's no, it's not strictly limited to traditional jazz in any way. And I like that even though there's no, there's no gospel in the show that I can think of, that, that's, that you're working it in in the way background to add to the texture there.
2: Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think it comes from the same place, you know what I mean? So I, I wanted to, yeah, just investigate that.
1: So, as a producer on this, what like are you involved from the beginning of like putting the cast together? I know you guys are hiring real musicians to to be the band and kind of helping them be actors, which is fascinating. Um, but yeah, so what, are you involved from the very beginning on all that stuff?
2: So uh, this experience was a little bit different, well, very different I'd say, than my experience producing on High Flying Bird. In High Flying Bird, I was involved from the very beginning and had a you know had a contributed to yeah casting and locations, sort of all of it. Um, which was amazing. In this case of the Eddie, I came in quite late. I mean, they had been okay. working on the show for I think five or six years, developing it. So, um, so I didn't really have a, a, a big say over, you know, casting or or um, or the, the music, any of it. You know, it, but I did get to contribute a bit when it came to to the story. Uh, there were mm-hmm. some things in the script overall that I felt really passionately about, and so we were able to sit down and have some. Not always easy conversations, but some, you know, some conversations that were important to me. And uh, and I think having a seat at the table allowed, helped to allow some of those um, those things, to, the things that I wanted to make their way into the story to, to, to make their way in.
1: What were the things that you were, I mean, I, I don't want to spoil too much about the show, but I'm curious about what you fought for in particular.
2: Well, I fought for a lot of things, but um, the relationship between my character and the Mandala's character was really important to me. Um, yeah that we accurately represent what this this black father and his black daughter might be like um mm-hmm. uh, and that we really you know be specific about that and not and not just generalize it and and pretend that it could be any sort of uh, father daughter but that it's a black father and his black daughter that was important um, the thing i was saying about the music you know it was important to me that we acknowledge in some way even if we don't do it literally that we somehow find a way of acknowledging and honoring the contributions that that African American people have made to not only jazz music but to all music to all culture you know throughout the 20th century you know what i mean <laughs> and and mm-hmm. and you know and uh yeah always really um so it was important to me to do that and and then also just really i really wanted to take care um of the ways in which these characters are are portrayed you know it's um yeah when you're dealing with 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 jazz and 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 uh I mean you're really talking about culture, you know mm-hmm. and so um yeah it was important to me to really sort of fight for fight for the proper cultural representation,
1: yeah, I wanted to ask about Amanda Steinberg because she's had such a kind of a not mediocre, rise because she's been acting for a long time, but it does feel like everything she does, she just steps up to this new level of attention. And you guys are so in the pocket together. You have so many scenes together. That relationship is so complex. So, what what work did you guys maybe do together to to
2: build that? Amanda is outstanding. I mean, I can't say enough about her. She is really, 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 really special. Uh, she's so smart, so talented. Uh, she works super hard. I mean, when we first showed up, she had already done. An enormous amount of work on the character and on the world. So when we got together to rehearse, she and I, uh, outside of the, the sort of scheduled rehearsals, we had conversations about, you know, history and and literature and music and and you know, exchanged a lot of films with each other. Um, she was very sort of open about her own life and sharing with me some experiences that she's had that that helped her to better understand Julie uh, so I think we, we worked really, really well together, and a lot of our scenes, you know, and credit to Damien for this, a lot of the stuff we did, we ended up improvising, you know, on mm. the day, uh, ba- based on the work that we had done, and Damien, uh, you know, everybody, but especially Damien, had uh, faith in us, I think, to, um, you know, gave us freedom to do that.
1: Was there improvisation uh, throughout the series, or was it mostly your and a manless scenes that had that?
2: No, there were, there, were, there were moments, I mean, I, a lot of it was, in a lot of cases, we stuck to the script, but there were moments throughout all the episodes where we were encouraged to improvise. Particularly, mm-hmm. I know the band uh, improvised a lot, you know, because, you know, they've been playing music forever, right? So they, mm-hmm. have a, they know what it's like, that, what that world is like. So a lot of times when they were having their scenes, Damien or the other directors might say, yeah, you know, let's, let's do one like it is on, on the page, and then let's do another one the way you guys feel it.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: what might you say?
1: Are you improvising in French? Whew.
2: Listen. <laughs> there were there were a couple of times. There were a few times when I when I attempted it. And uh and it worked out a couple of times. A couple of them made it <laughs> in, but there are other times when it's like, listen, you work with somebody like Layla Becky who's amazing and yeah. you improvise with her and then she she takes off and, and I, I can't keep up with her when it comes to the French.
1: Well, what was your level of French before taking this on?
2: I studied in school, in high school. You know, and then I took a little bit in college and then I, I um, kept kept taking classes just on my own here in New York, periodically. So, uh, and, and then for a time I, I lived in France, you know, many, many years ago and worked with this theater company out there. So I had a, you know, basic... You were better
1: life. off than most Americans would be, I think. I
2: think so. I mean, I understood a fair amount, but, uh, but speaking French, you know, act- acting in French is a different thing. And then acting in French in front of a French crew <laughs> who are very particular about the, their vowel sounds uh, yeah. it was, it was challenging.
1: Oh. And some great French actors too
2: on top oh, of man. that. Oh man, is- Tahar Rahim yeah. and Layla and I mean, they're just so dope.
1: Yeah. Um, and the the music part of it the way that you guys are doing rehearsals not just to have the scenes down but also have these songs because there are so many songs all these original compositions by Glenn Ballard how does that change I mean you're not performing with the band for the most part but like how does that change the process of rehearsing and kind of getting into the world of it does it give you a leg up in that you just have to spend the time to get the songs right
2: yeah but it, I mean it like doubles or triples the workload you know it, it's <laughs> it's like it's unbelievable the amount of rehearsing that they had to do to get those songs down and and, and you know Joanna too like having I think she learned 16 songs some in French some in English I think she does a couple in Polish I mean just it was nonstop. and then you know having we shot all the music live right so Mm -hmm. the acting that had to happen at the in the at the same time that the music was being played there was a constant dance of like okay the acting has to take the back seat right now because we have to we have to lay down this particular song and it takes this this amount of time to do it so whatever acting you were planning on doing, you got to fit it into that, into that box. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, but it was cool. I mean, I think in a way uh, that process kind of mirrored what it, what I think it feels like to create music, right? That you sort of, Mm -hmm. it's this constant give and take and, and uh, compromise.
1: I mean, when you talk about setting the acting aside and recording a certain take, it it feels to me like, I mean, I guess musical theater is a whole different skill set than jazz, but they would go hand in hand, you know, that you're, like, performing through the song, so you are being in character, even if you have to, like, focus more on getting the, you know, technical beat of something, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah, I think that I think that's true. I, I, I'm not a big singer. I'm not a good singer. I never did a musical, but <laughs> but I can imagine that being true, for sure.
1: Well, you did drama school, so you must have had some musical theater or something in there, right?
2: Yeah, you know... <laughs> I always wanted to be a great singer and to be, you know, like a Hugh Jackman, get up and do the, but uh, it it wasn't my gift, you know. But I love musical theater. I've seen a lot of musical theater. I just haven't ever um, been in one.
1: So was the singing part of this nerve-wracking in particular for for when you did have to sing?
2: That was the scariest part of the whole thing. (laughs) More than the French, more than the piano playing, more than the acting. That was the scariest part.
1: What did you, did you have a coach what did you do to to prepare for that oh,
2: i had like three coaches <laughs> i mean i started you know started working on it yeah like before i even got over there to paris and kept working on it throughout so yeah i had danny wyrick is was a uh, gentleman who was on our music team he's a brilliant singer musician and uh, he worked with me a lot you know before shooting after shooting we get together and work on things Then i had another guy here in new york who i worked with as well and Female friend of mine, Katie Fofa, who lives here in New York. She came over and worked with me a bit too. So I had a took took a village.
1: (laughs) Are you are you happy? I mean, the results sound great to me. So I hope you're happy with it too.
2: Thank you. I haven't had the courage to watch it yet, but (laughs) but, uh, I'm glad you. Thank you.
1: Do you watch yourself often, or do you try to avoid it?
2: Nah, I can't stand it. You know, when there's a premiere or there's something that you kind of have to sit through, you know what I mean. I, I watch things in that way, but I. Nah, I don't like it. I don't like it. I, I think I saw Moonlight once, maybe twice, and you know, because we had to at different screens or whatnot. And I've seen Half-Life Bird, you know, obviously mm-hmm. m- most of all because I was, you know, producing it. So I yeah. had to watch it for other reasons. And, and this I've seen a fair amount of, you know, um, the early cuts because of the same reason. But in general, no, I don't like to watch myself.
1: Yeah. I, w- I talked to uh, Merritt Weaver, who are, she's going to be on the show in a couple of weeks when this airs. I mean, she was just talking about how she w- watches her work so that she can talk about it for interviews, which I had. I don't think I'd ever heard an actor say that. It feels like a incredible level of research and maybe some amount of torture. Um, so I'm glad that you, <laughs> you can do it without having to put up with yourself on screen or. <laughs> or dive too deep into it otherwise. Um, when I was reading, I think maybe the same interview I was talking about, about High Flying Bird, um, you talked about how you felt like you wanted to be really selective in the work that you were doing and you tried to be careful. And a lot of times actors will say, you know, there's this illusion that you can be selective, but for most working actors, you kind of take the work that comes to you. Do you still feel like you're able to be selective in that way? And and how do you pull it off?
2: Oof, that's a good question. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, I agree with those actors who you mentioned. Like, I'm not... Um, sitting here choosing from like a plethora of things, right? Um, The good stuff is usually, there's not that much of it, you know, and Mm -hmm. everybody kind of wants it. So I try to just be, I try to just be smart and um, patient and, you know, I keep myself active in theater. So when, when things aren't coming in the sort of film and TV side of things, I have something I can always be working on. That's where producing really helps me too. Mm Because I think that muscle of like trying to make something um, satisfies that urge. And keeps me from jumping into things that I don't fully believe in. But yeah, for me, so much of it is about integrity, you know, cultural integrity and and also artistic integrity. and i'm I'm not I'd rather not be an actor if I have to sacrifice uh, either of those two things.
1: Was there a turning point for you if it if it was the Nick or moonlight or something that made you able to be more selective in that way that kind of took you from a working actor who needs to like take what comes to this position, or has it always been that way?
2: I feel like, in a way, I've always felt that way. You know, you know what I mean. Uh, but, th- but listen, that, that's that's also meant that there have been times when I've been a little hungry. You know what I mean? I'm not always known like how I'm gonna pay the bills or whatever. There's been some yeah. some, some, some lean moments. You know, yeah. but but I think I've I think I've always felt that way. You know, and and I don't want to I don't want to send the wrong message. Like I'm not in a position where I can sit back and be choosy. It's not that, man. I still gotta mm-hmm. I still gotta work. You know what I mean? I still got yeah, yeah, yeah. things I gotta do, but. But yeah, I don't, I, don't jump at, I don't jump at the first thing that comes along and, and um, you know, I'm slow. I take my time when it comes to making decisions. Sometimes it makes people angry and, and impatient with me and I understand that. But, you know, I, I just, I really like to sit with things and, and make sure I know why I'm doing it because otherwise, you know, you get there and then you, you're fighting with yourself or you're fighting with everybody else and, and there's no reason to do something, I think, that, that you're going to be ashamed of or that you don't mm-hmm. feel, feel good about.
1: Do you feel like you've developed an ability to? Because you know, when you agree to do a film or, or a show or anything, like you can read the script and it can be a great script, but there's a million ways that something can go really awry. Um, and I wonder if you feel like you've trained yourself in a way to know what's good to like, not just read a great script, but know that it will come out the way that you want it to. Because your batting average is strong enough that it feels like you got some secret there.
2: Well, thank you for saying that. That really, no, really, that means a lot to me. That that really does. I think um, I don't have a, I don't have a magic formula for it. You, you know what I mean? Um, It often ends up it's just a roll of the dice, you know, but I do try to look at who the people are that are involved. I look at the writing and whether or not the writing itself is good, because if generally I find that if the writing isn't good, everybody is going to (laughs) suffer at some point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I try to look at what people have made and and ask around and see, like, well, what, what was the energy like? What was the vibe like on set? How do they treat actors, you know? Uh, so
1: you're looking for good people to work with, not just people who make good work.
2: Exactly, good. Exactly, exactly. Good. That's a way. Good people to work with. That's important. Now, that's it. I just, I just gonna say I don't have a magic formula. If, if you know anybody <laughs> um, that does, tell them to get in touch because I'd like to know.
1: <laughs> I think you were saying that Ava DuVernay was your model for um, how to treat people on set, like how to make it sure that it's like uh, everyone's functioning and everyone is taken care of. Uh, is, is she still kind of your model for that?
2: Yeah, she set the bar for me. I mean just the way she treats everybody, you know, and, and the effect that that has on every single person in the crew or in the cast. They'll they'll run through a wall for her at any given moment, yeah. you know what I mean? And and that's important to me. So I've not yet found anybody else like quite like her in that respect, <laughs> but there but there are a lot of people who work Barry works the same way, you know, he really empowers people on his crew and in his cast and and I think, you know, and and Steven Soderbergh too. Everybody everybody knows that they are uh, essential. I hate to yeah. use that word right now, but that they are uh, yeah. essential on set. You know what I mean?
1: Um, all right. I think I can let you go and start your drive. Um, I hope you have a great trip. It's going to be beautiful, and hopefully the traffic won't be too so bad.
2: Oh, uh, Thank you so much.
1: Okay, that does it for this week's episode. Um, for next week's rewatch, our, our poll is already complete. It's going to be My Cousin Vinny which is, I think, going to be a delight for all of us to revisit. The Best Supporting Actress winner for Marissa Tomei. So watch it with us. Join in. Keep following us on Twitter at Men to vote on our upcoming rewatches and hear other things going on with us. Obviously, you can read us all at VanityFair.com as well. And follow us on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich. And Richard. Rylos. And Joanna.
3: Joe wrote this.
1: And Mike is at Mike underscore Hogan. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the simplest but most important quarantine advice goes to Joanna Robinson.
3: Brush your teeth, man. The Run Through Vogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Um, who should be the mayor of New York.
1: We all support that. We support that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asha, can you hear
2: us?
0: I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me?
2: We can. We can.
0: All right, here we are.